0: The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Perhaps the, uh, the three most powerful words in the English language. Perhaps if you put these three together, this phrase, the most powerful phrase in the English language. I mean, it evokes and awakens um, a joy, a a great tear, sometimes great pains. It's all over the place. It's in every corner of the community, every corner of our culture. We see it in nearly every movie. In fact, this summer, I mean, summer's big time for movies. I'm sure some of you are going to be going to the movies this summer. And it is likely that you will see this or hear this notion. Uh, We see it in almost every media presence. In fact, let's just take a moment, check out this clip, and just see if you can pull out the words that we're referring to. Check it out. I didn't ever get a chance to tell you, but I was. I hope I'm not saying the wrong thing. But I love you. I want to tell you I love you. I love you, boy. I love you. You love me? I love you, honey. Yes, I love you like in a song. I wonder if you know how much I love you. I love you. I love you, honey bunny. Look, I love you, Lee. I love you. So I think we get the picture, huh? I think we had—it's the, the word love. Um, this, this, this love, this notion, I mean, it inspires, doesn't it? It encourages. It overwhelms at times. Sometimes it builds up hearts and it breaks down walls. And other times it breaks down hearts and it builds up walls, doesn't it? Sometimes this, this love acts decisively. And other times it stays silent. So uh, if you're here today, whether you're online watching us or you're here in person and and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, first of all, let me say this. We are so grateful for your time and for your attendance. Thank you for being here. But, But whether you're a follower of Jesus today or not, whether you've trusted in him only for salvation or not, this is not hard to see because every marriage wants it. Every relationship needs it. No one survives without it. This real, genuine, difference-making kind of love. So what is it? Well, the Bible talks about it, and the Bible tells us that not only can we know what it is, but we can know who it's from. You see, when God speaks about love, when when God unveils and reveals and discusses and and illustrates love, it is something far deeper. It is something far richer, far more profound, and far greater than than what we normally interact with in our day-to-day life, what we normally say, what we normally see in the culture. I mean, I'll, I'll say, man, I, I love chocolate. Love it. And, and I do. But Jesus now elevates that to a new plane when he says, you know, love your enemies. That's, that's crazy. Or, or he commands, love your neighbor as yourself. And some of you are like, man, you, you, do you know my neighbors? <laughs> but, but, but Jesus now by both word and deed consistently elevates this truth about what a life of love a difference-making kind of love looks like. And, and this is why it's so significant to each one of us today. So whether you're here or, or watching online, this is, this is why this is such a big deal to all of us. Because every marriage wants it. Every relationship needs it. And no one survives without it. I mean, the Beatles sang, All We Need Is Love, right? But, but, but did they know what kind? I mean, I, say, I gotta tell you, we say we love all kinds of things, don't we? I mean, we say we love almost everything, but do we really? And does that change anything? I mean, so does it end up being a a moving scene in a movie or some light, fluffy words in a song, or is it this lasting kind of love that, that makes a difference, a lasting difference in your life, my life, and in the life of others? So the question that we long to have answered is what kind of love really makes a difference? And where can I get it? So I have two kids. Um, and when my kids were young, my son and my daughter, when they were younger, um, especially then, even, even so now, but as, as most parents do, we would uh, repeat phrases to them. We would say things to them over and over. We would share words with them, maybe a biblical truth, maybe some, some, some words or some phrases we would repeat over and over and over to them. I mean, our, our goal, my wife and I, our, our desire as a mom and dad was to grow them, was to, you know, to build their character, right? To build their, their, their person. And you guys, you guys know what that's like, don't you? I mean, how many times can you remember your parents repeating something to you over and over and over again? Maybe it still rings in your ears today. Maybe some of you parents are doing that with your kids right now. So, of course, my kids heard, you know, yeah, they, they heard stuff like, um, you know, what did they hear? Hey, uh, I'm going to wash your mouth out with soap. So, and actually, Nuri did that once or twice. Yeah, They heard, hey, stop your crying before I give you something to cry about. Yeah, they heard stuff like that too. And, and we were trying to build them, teach them. But more often than not, they heard good choices, good consequences. Bad choices, bad consequences. Or in our home when they were little, they were grown up, man, we would say things like, Oh, you may chico look at the way I seed. And for all of the Spanish translation that are listening, that was for you, you're welcome. Um, but often they would hear as well: choose to sin, choose to suffer. Or partial obedience is not really obedience. They would hear things like that. You see, as a mom and dad, we were trying to build them up. We were trying to build their character, form their person, that they would reflect something richer, something greater. And God, as your heavenly father, wants to build in you, teach you, mold you, shape you, wants to to build in you so that you reflect something greater. So you reflect something richer, his character, his nature, his disposition. So it's no surprise then that the Bible makes this really, really clear. It's no surprise that, that God actually enumerates a list for us. He gives us nine virtues. Nine character traits that, that, that help us uh, develop and grow into more and more like the person he wants us to be, reflecting his nature, reflecting who he is. And he heads that list with love. Now, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, Scripture talks about love quite differently than we do. When Scripture talks about love, it elevates it to another plane. When Scripture refers to love, it talks about that notion, that truth. I mean, it is richer. It is, it is something that renovates hearts. The world talks about culture, uh, the culture of the world talk about love, and we do it in, we water it down, we, we sissify it, we, we make it some kind of touchy-feely kind of thing all the time. I mean, you need, only need to go to one Meg Ryan romantic comedy, see another Disney flick, or listen to Jerry Maguire tell you one more time, you complete me, to see the world's perspective on love. But that's not the scripture's. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle that we've read and talked about many, many times, he writes this letter. He writes this letter to a region of churches that he himself established, the letter to the Galatians. So that's going to be our first stop today, Galatians chapter 5. Um, you find us there uh, in your Bibles, and you can find them on your devices. It'll also be on the screens for us as well, Galatians chapter 5. And as you're doing that, let me just, let me just say this about Galatians 5, that, that Paul writes, and, and he writes two lists there. He writes two lists in Galatians 5, and he does this for a comparison purpose. The first list that he writes is a list of vices, 15 vices in verses 19 through 21. The second list that he writes in Galatians chapter 5 is a list of nine virtues, 22 and 23. So let's take a quick look and check out these nine virtues that he writes in Galatians chapter 5. You know, because I like to be clear, you guys like clarity? Clarity? Yeah, good, because I mean, let's, let's be really clear about this because we're going to be talking about it all summer long. So we want to nail down what this fruit of the Spirit is. And if you're taking notes, this, this is what it's going to look like. We've got that on the screen for you too. The fruit of the Spirit is what appears in a person's life who walks by the Spirit. And walking by the Spirit means that we do the desires produced in us by the Holy Spirit and not the desires produced by our flesh. So it's, it's quite clear there. It's, it's, it's our will versus God's will. It, it, it's what I want to do, when, what I want, and where I want to go versus what God wants. So that's the contrast that we're seeing in Galatians 5. And actually, before we read the text, let's do this. Let's make three things really, really clear. Let's, let's make these three things abundantly clear, not just for today's truth, but for every truth that comes in the weeks ahead from all these other virtues. Let's remember these three important things. Number one, that the, the work that God does in us, the work that God does, this, this fruit that he does in us, is what God desires. And it's his work, not ours. So what God desires to do in us, he does. We don't. That's the first one. The second truth that we want to have abundantly clear is what God desires, this fruit is produced by God. And number three, the third thing that we want to have abundantly clear is that this fruit looks... Like Jesus. It's his nature. It's his character. It's his disposition. It looks like Jesus. So, with that, now let's look at Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Let me read it for you. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self control. Against such there is no law. So these are the virtues that we're going to be looking at over these next weeks. And Paul, Paul, the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write this text, starts off that list, heads that list with love. And and he heads that list, and Paul is big on love, not just in in this letter, but throughout the New Testament, throughout Paul's writings, we see that he's big on love. And here, he listed first, not only because he believes that it to be the, the chief virtue, but it is likely that Paul believed that all of those other virtues we just read spring forth from and are tied back into this chief virtue of love. And now the specific word that we're talking about, guys, we've got to talk about this too, because in English, we have one word for love. It's... Love, right, very astute of you. But in, in the Greek, in the original language that the New Testament was written, there are four words for love. Each one of them with a different connotation, but there's four words. So it's, it, we need to understand the specific word that the Holy Spirit impi- inspired Paul to write is the famous Greek word agape. Agape. This is the love of preference. Agape is the others-centered kind of love. The love that says you before me. It's, it's that kind of love that Paul writes about, that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write about here in Galatians chapter 5, you before me. So as we look at love, now what we're going to do each week from virtue to virtue is we're going to look at the life of Jesus and pull out an episode that illustrates, demonstrates, or, or communicates the great truth that we're talking about. So the second stop that we're going to make today is going to be in the Gospel of John. So for you guys have your Bibles, just a few pages to the left, back in the Gospel of John, that's where we're headed. You can find that on your devices. We will also have the Gospel of John on the screen, chapter 15 in particular. That's where we're going, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And as you're making your way there, let me just say this, that this excerpt of Jesus' life is right smack in the middle of the most difficult week of his human life. And, And in that week, he communicates this great agape love to his friends and to his followers and in turn to us. So look with me at John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read through them, and we're not going to talk about all the verses today. We're going to pull out three specific truths that are found there, starting in verse 12 in chapter 15. This is what Paul writes, uh, This is what John writes. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, in the middle of the most grueling, most difficult week of Jesus's life, he he commands and he communicates this great love, this agape love. And he says three things in that passage that we're going to pull out and talk about today. And the first one is this. He says, this agape love looks like these three things. It's commanded, it's costly, and it's customary. The love of God, the the agape love that Paul's referring to here, that John's referring to, is a commanded love, it is a costly love, and it is a love that's customary. And the first one we get from verse 12. The verse we just read a moment ago, verse 12. This I command to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So in God's economy, as God presents this picture of this kind of love, it is something that he commands, which means that you you have a choice to obey the command, or to disobey. This is an act of the will. Agape love is is very much a choice, an act of the will. So it is not simply seen by lip service, but by sincere and genuine actions. You choose to respond to people in a way that shows them preference. I mean, you choose to respond to people in your attitudes, in your words, in your, in your intentions, in your body language, in, in how you say what you say, in all of that. You choose to respond to someone in a way that shows them preference. This is an act of the will. It's commanded. But notice with me in that verse that it's not only commanded. Because Jesus says, I command you so that you go and love others as I have loved you. So not only does he command it, but he demonstrates it. Now, remember who's writing this. This is important for context. Remember who's writing these verses. This is the great Apostle John. This is is one of the eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. And that is supremely important, not only to the veracity of the text, but to the integrity of the text, that we have an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. The one who, who walked in the dirt, who stepped in the dirt with Jesus. The one who watched these things unfold before his very eyes, and the Holy Spirit inspired him to write about it. I mean, he walked with Jesus. He saw how Jesus loved people. He saw Jesus love um, friends and enemies, rich and poor, weak and strong. And Jesus boasts of this, this love that's deeper, this love that's richer, this love that's, that's more profound than what we know and how, how we experience in life. Jesus um, responds in that way and says in that way. And not only does he say it's commanded, But if we look at the very next verse, in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone who lays his life down for another. This agape love is also costly. Love has a cost. See, love reaches its apex. Love reaches, agape love reaches the mountaintop, reaches the pinnacle when it sacrifices for another. When it shows preference to the other person over yourself. Yes, yes, even to the degree that someone would put their life in jeopardy for another. That someone would put themselves in harm's way for another person. It was in the 1940s that the Nazis invaded the Netherlands in World War II. And, and uh, in, in Holland, there was this Dutch family, this Dutch Christian family, that saved the lives of, of many, many Jews in Holland during World War II. So when the Nazis controlled Holland, the secret police the Gestapo, they controlled the streets. They controlled everything, food rations and curfews. I mean, and people would would disappear off the streets. They would vanish. They were swept up and, and carried off to the horrific concentration camps. People would be there one day and gone the next. And there was this Dutch Christian family that what they did was there in Holland is they built on the top floor of their home they built uh, what amounts to a secret room. They would smuggle in materials and sneak in um, supplies from local resistance groups, and they built this secret room, what they called the hiding place. Because what was happening was, I mean, in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night, it was... And, and children would show up with suitcases. Or, or parents and moms and dads would show up, uh, fearful and afraid of the terror that awaited them outside, and they would, they would be invited into this home. They'd be cared for and fed and hidden in this very home. That was a choice that the family made. That was an act of agape love. And there was a cost. See, not soon after that, and the neighbors... And, and some of the residents there in the neighborhood reported the activities of the Ten Boom family to the local secret police. And the secret police, the Gestapo, on February 28, 1944, raided that home and beat and arrested everyone they found and dragged them off to Ravensbrook death camp. The six Jews that were hiding in the secret room that day were not detected or found. But Corrie Ten Boom's 87-year-old father died that day. Her sister died shortly after that in the Ravensbruck death camp, and it was only by a miraculous clerical error that Corrie Ten Boom herself escaped her, her execution, her scheduled execution, only days before it was supposed to happen. Corrie Ten Boom and her family are credited with saving the lives of over eight hundred Jews in Holland in World War II. And in her famous book called *The Hiding Place*, she writes, unveils this story of hope. This story of forgiveness, this story of a commanded love and a costly love. And I just want to read to you one small excerpt on what Cory Ten Boom says about love in her book, The Hiding Place. She writes this. Do you know what hurts so very much? It's love. Love is the, the strongest force in the world and when it is blocked, that means pain. There are two things that we can do when that happens. We can kill that love so that it stops hurting, but then, of course, part of us dies as well. Or we can ask God to open up another route for that love to travel. This is a picture of agape love. See, Jesus here is speaking to his friends then, and by implication, his friends today. He's speaking to all of us, and he's saying, Love has a cost. He says, this this agape love is oftentimes not easy. It's oftentimes not trouble-free. It's oftentimes not happy-go-lucky. And some of you know that all too well, don't you? For it is in your families and in your homes and with your children and with your friends and with your close relatives that, that you've poured yourself out, that you've done everything you know to do that you have preferred the other time and time and time again there's nothing left for you to do and it has not ended well it has not gone the way you had hoped to go someone left someone died you were crushed but we have a god who, who understands that pain i mean we have a god who who knows the sting of that sorrow and that sacrifice for you see, for, for God to demonstrate his love and, and, and God's love demonstrated and his forgiveness of sins and his opening the gates of heaven, that love, that forgiveness is free, right? But it's not cheap. For God to have demonstrated his love in this way, forgiven us like that and opened those gates of heaven, it came at a cost. It came at an immensely high cost. I mean, this, this, this Jesus knows the pain of abandonment. Jesus understands the sting of sorrow and being left behind and being forgotten and being rejected and being lied to. He knows that sting because it was the cost of love. That's what love does. And, and did, did, you think, did you think God's love had no cost? God, help us. I mean, the Bible says that, that God showed us his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man, it's, it's Jesus' life for our sin. That's love. It's God saying, give me your sin. I've given you my son. I love you. What that? is that? That's, what, isn't that crazy? What is that? No. That's love. That's agape love. And not only is God's love commanded, not only is it costly, but as we look in the passage and we drop down to verse 17, we see that God's love, this agape love, is customary. So look, there's so much more in this passage from 12 to 17. We are only extracting these three truths that exist there. The third one is this love is customary. Let's look at the, let's look at the verse in verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. These things I command you. He reiterates the command that he started with, and then he includes that so that in there. That's really, really important. He commands it so that we do it. He commands it so that it's reflected in our life. He commands it so that it's illustrative of who we are, that is so reflective of our person, so that it is so customary on how we live and how we behave and how we interact that it actually entices other people to love that way. This agape love is such that it should be so customary of how we live our lives that it would entice another not only to love you, but to love other people in this way. His love is commanded, agape love is costly, and agape love is customary. And isn't isn't that the life of Jesus? Isn't that the story of this love? In that last grueling week of his life, I mean, he shows up to Jerusalem riding on a donkey to parades and and people yelling Hosanna and laying down palm branches, singing his name, selling his t-shirts, the whole nine yards. He shows up and it's a party. And then he goes through that roller coaster of emotion for a week with, with the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. I don't know if you know what that feels like. Do you know do you, if you know what that feels like? That, the, the highest of highs and then the abominable of lows. But I know that Jesus does. For so that's the cost of love. then he gets to thursday right and he has this dinner this this passover meal this last supper with his uh, most dearest and most well-known and loved friends on this earth those men sat with him at that table and they reclined at that table and jesus says to them what he's told them over and over and over and they still don't get i'm going to be betrayed i'm going to die But take heart, because I'm going to go and you can't come with me now, but I'm going to come back and get you. Now, they didn't know it when he said it, and they didn't quite understand it fully at that dinner yet. And I don't don't know if you know what it's like to have to say things over and over and over and over. And people just won't listen or they won't understand or they don't get it. I know that Jesus does. That's the cost of love. I don't know if you know what it feels like to be betrayed. To have someone turn their back on you but I know that Jesus does because he prefers the other over himself. So at this dinner, Jesus is saying that and, and then and he actually gives up an illustration of what he's doing. He takes the bread at the table, the unleavened bread, and he breaks it and he divides it up again uh, among all 12 of them and he says, this is my body. That's going to be given up for you. It's going to be broken for you. Take it, eat it. And every time you do this, you remember my sacrifice. Then he takes the chalice of wine and he distributes that among all the people at the table. And he says to his men, he says to them, listen, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it. And every time you do this, you do this in remembrance of my spilt blood for you. And then then he, he gets up from the table as they were all reclined at the table. He gets up from the table and he takes off his outer garment. He has his undergarment on and he puts a towel around himself, grabs a basin of water and begins to do the most menial and lowly task of a servant and washes the filthy feet of the disciples, one by one by one. He gets to Peter, and Peter's like, you're not washing my feet. And he's like, listen, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter's like, all right, bring it. So Jesus goes and he washes all the feet, and then he gets to the one. He kneels down in front of the one that he created, that in moments from then is going to betray him. And he looks into the eyes. I, I don't know what that would have felt like. I don't, he looks into the eyes of the one who's, who's going to betray him. I don't know if you've ever had to do something kind for someone or show love to someone who didn't like you or who was actively working against you behind your back. I don't know if you know what that feels like. But Jesus does. Because he washes Judas's filthy feet. Moments after that, the betrayer gets up and goes to do his work. Jesus gets up from that dinner, gets up with his disciples and they head off to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they're walking out, Jesus again is reiterating to them, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, I mean, I will go with you. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, will you really? You're gonna deny me three times before the sun comes up. I don't know if you know what it feels like to have someone in front of you that have got your back. I mean, when they're there with you, then they're encouraging and they're saying all these things, but you know that they never have your back. You know that they won't be able to accomplish the task that they're talking about. I don't know if you know what that feels like, but I know that Jesus does, because that's the cost of love. And they head towards the garden, they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, All right, you guys wait here, and I'm going to go pray. So pray with me and pray for yourselves. And he walks away, walks a little further, does it again. He walks back, and they're sleeping. He walks away, comes back into sleeping again. He does it a third time. And finally, even the king of the universe is like, man, can you not stay up for an hour and pray with me and for yourselves? I don't know if you know what it feels like to need help, to ask someone to help you with something, to rely upon someone else that doesn't come through, that doesn't get it done, that falls by the wayside. I don't know if you know what that feels like. But I know that Jesus does. Because that's the cost of love. And he's sitting there and he's praying and he's praying with such fervor and such pain and such emotional distress that it is if he's got drops of blood. And in that moment, he says, Father, if in all of his humanity, in all of his deity, he says, Father, if you could take this from me, but not my will, your will. And then he gets up and he goes back to the apostles. And I guess, guess it, one of his friends is on his way with a whole bunch of friends. Judas shows up with a whole cohort of the soldiers and all of their bravado and weapons and torches. And this beautiful scene, the most ugly and beautiful scene you can read in the scriptures takes place where, where um, Judas approaches Jesus and one of the gospels, gives him a kiss. And now that was the sign, right? The guy kisses, the guy you grab. So he goes to Jesus and kisses him. I don't know if you know what it feels like to have someone in front of you, your friend, be kind to you, encourage you, even be nice to you, and go out of their way for you. And behind your back, they're plotting against you. I don't know if you know what that feels like. But I know that my Savior does. Because that's the cost of love. And then one of the most striking scenes in all of Scripture takes place, and and particularly in John's Gospel, where where he's standing there and, and, and the soldiers ask a question. I love, or Jesus asked them a question. I love when Jesus does that and he already knows the answer. He says, whom are you seeking? And they say Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' response in this particular occasion is so dramatic and so striking that I dare not pass it without sharing it with you. Jesus' response, I am he. And at that response, and if you remember, if you think back to the Old Testament, that's the response that God gave to Moses when Moses wanted to identify who God was. God says, you tell him, I am sent you. And Jesus uses the same construction, the same I am. And actually at the revelation of his deity, It is almost as if God pulls back the curtain and part of his glory and just some of his deity just blew them away because at the pronouncement of his deity, who he is, John's gospel reports, the eyewitness, John says, that the soldiers hit the dirt. I mean, he spoke who he was and they fell down. I don't know how you get up and arrest a man after you just got blown over by his words, but that's what they did. They chained him like an animal and drug him off like a circus freak. And then he goes to one of his first four kangaroo courts. He shows up to the people that should know him, the people that should love him. And and what are they doing? Trumming up charges and falsifying testimony and trying to damage his character. I don't know if you know what that feels like. For someone to lie about you, for someone to damage your character and damage your testimony and trum up these false things about you. I don't know if you know what that feels like. But I know that Jesus does. Because this was love of preference for the other. And then he goes to, to, from that court to another court to that clown, Herod. And he stands before Herod. And Herod mocks him and laughs at him and says, hey man, play us, do, a, do a miracle like a trick pony. And Jesus stays silent. I don't know if you know what it feels like to be laughed at, to be mocked, to be made fun of. But I know that Jesus does. Because that was the cost of love. And from there he goes to Pilate. One of the two episodes that he stands before Pilate, right? And he's, he's there in front of Pilate. And Pilate says to him, "Man, don't you know? I have the power to crucify you or set you free. And Jesus says to him, you have no power that my father hasn't given you. I don't bow to your will. I bow to his will. I don't do what you want. I do what he wants. And then Pilate sets him out, realizing that, man, he's got nothing that I can get on him. And he puts him out in front of, he parades him in front of uh, all the people that were seven days ago cheering and celebrating and waving palm branches. Now they're saying, crucify him. Hosanna in the highest. No, crucify him. We don't want him anymore. I don't know if you know what it feels like to not be wanted by family, by friends, by people who you thought would want you. But I know Jesus does because that was the cost of love. And he stands before them. Pilate even enacts one of their traditions, and he says, you know what? I'll bring out this other guy, this insurrectionist, this rebel, and I'll put him out, so why don't you take Jesus, and we'll crucify that guy. And the crowd says, no, 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 we still want Jesus to die. So they chose the thug, Barabbas, over the savior, Jesus. I don't know if you know what that feels like, to be set aside. But Jesus does because of love of preference. And then from there, he carries the wood he created, the trees that he made, he carries on his back and gets nailed to. And he dies between two thieves and he dies, these Roman executioners, professional execution. They even stab him in the side with with the spear to make sure blood and water came out, an indication of death. He comes down off the cross. They put him in a tomb, tomb sealed, guards posted. It's over. It's done. It's done. All of his friends scatter, gone, hiding. I don't know if you know what that feels like to have all of your friends run, to have people abandon you, leave you. I know that Jesus does because that was the cost of love. And then three days later, as the scriptures gloriously declare, stone rolled away, the guards fell as dead men and the angel's sitting in the tomb going, he's not here. He's risen just as he said is this not the story of love? Is this not the the love of Jesus and his life? The famous evangelist, perhaps one of the greatest evangelists of the 20th century, certainly preached the gospel to more people than any preacher in history. Billy Graham wrote this. Let me quote it for you. Billy Graham said, God proved his love on the cross when Christ hung and bled and died. God said to the world, I love you. You see, our greatest problem, your, your greatest difficulty in mind, our greatest obstacle, it's not our obedience, it's not our, uh, our decisiveness, it's not our discipline, it's not how strong we are, how wise we are, it's none of those things. It's our belief. Our belief. It's, can it be? It, it, is it possible? That there's a God who loves with a love that, that's so deep and so vast and so high and so, so profound and so embracing and so inclusive and so lasting. Is it possible? And we say, no, 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 no. You, you, don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't, I, I've, I've cursed your name. I, I've ruined my family. I've rejected my children. You don't know what I've done. And God says, yes. Yes, I do. Give it to me. I'll take it. But, but, but I'm ashamed and, I, and, and I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed of what I did and I'm ashamed of how I've acted and what I said and, and who I... I know you are. Give it to me. I'll take it. See, some of you here are, are mad at God today and you're, you're frustrated with God and you're angry at God. Maybe you, you even curse God and it hasn't gone the way you wanted it to go. And you think, may God... God, God God has forgotten me he doesn't see me he doesn't love me and God says no no son daughter look what I've done for you if ever there was a moment you doubt my love you need only to look to the cross you need only to look to Jesus my son will take your sin and your shame and your embarrassment and your hurt and your pain and your struggles and your abandonment he'll take it and he'll give you love he'll give you hope He'll give you peace. Jesus goes to the cross and we go free. That's the love that makes a difference. For some of us today, for the Christians that are here, for those that are following Christ, I mean, may may this, this needs to be a reminder and a refresher in your heart. You need to recognize this is a love not just for eternity, but a love for right here, for right now, for today. May this rekindle that fire afresh in your hearts. Some here today, don't, you, you, don't, you don't know this unimaginable love of Christ. And you haven't, you haven't turned from your sin, you haven't turned from yourself and, and embraced this. See, here's the thing, we, we all need this. All of us, through every circumstance and situation, every difficulty and disaster, we all need this. It's Jesus' love. It's Jesus' hope. It's Jesus' salvation, Jesus' strength, it's Jesus, it's Jesus yesterday, Jesus today, and Jesus tomorrow. It is Jesus that we need. For some today, it is Jesus that you need. So we're gonna close in a time of worship, but, but there's a couple of things we gotta do first, and, and, and let, me just, let me just call out to you. Let me just share, the scriptures are calling out to you that if this is the love you have not experienced, If this is the love that you have not embraced, now is your moment. Now is your time. And we're going to pray together. And you can pray with me and and receive this love and and receive this free gift of salvation. And and the words are not magical. The words aren't going to save you. But the Bible says that the confession of your mouth that Jesus is Lord and the belief in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that will save you. So let's take a moment then together in those this most holy of moments, and we'll bow our heads and close our eyes. And those that need to reach out to Jesus, now is your moment. Pray with me, Jesus. I, you know what I've done, you know where I've been. You you you've known my struggle all along, and I, I need you. I, I I need your love. I I need your forgiveness. I ask you to save me. I ask you to forgive me and save me. And I embrace this free gift of salvation that you give. I thank you for loving me in in this unimaginable way. I love you. And I trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.